1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. An apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. My daughter did gender studies at Adelaide University some years ago, uh, actually only a few years ago now, and I remember looking at some of the materials that she was given as she did that course, and, uh, and one of them I brought along today, actually. Uh, there was a, a magazine called The Housekeeping Monthly uh, that used to be published in Australia, and uh, in the edition that was issued on the 13th of May, 1955, there was an article in it called The Good Wife's Guide. The Good Wife's Guide. Let me read you a couple of the um, handy hints uh, that were suggested for wives on how they should treat their husbands when he got home from work. Okay, here's one. Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Uh, most men are hungry when they come home. Actually, most men are hungry all the time, I think. But uh, most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospect of a good meal, especially his favourite dish, is part of the warm welcome needed. Okay? Charming little piece of advice. Okay? Here's another one. Uh, be a little gay and a little... I remember this is 1950s, okay? <laughs> okay, be a little gay and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. And there's lots of other charming little bits of advice uh, in the Housekeeping Monthly, 13th of May, 1955. Now, when we turn to the Bible, to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, this is written about 64 AD, and we just heard uh, some uh, information about how God's people were meant to regard each other. Verse 12 I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet or silent. 
or verse 15, but a woman will be saved through childbearing. Now, to our 21st century ears, okay, 1 Timothy 2 sounds like the Christian equivalent of the housekeeping monthly. Okay, that is just the way it hits our culture at this particular point in time. And so I think the temptation is to dismiss it as a cultural throwback and just to, just to have that sort of immediate reaction, well, that's obviously stupid, so we'll get rid of it, uh, and to think that way as we engage with it. Or maybe to think it's tied to the particular circumstances of a church in the, you know, the 60s, in uh, Ephesus and therefore the particulars of that are no longer applicable to our situation. Uh, maybe a bit like um, uh, other instructions uh, 30 or 40 years ago women used to wear hats in church we don't don't do that any longer therefore this information has passed away or like the Old Testament sacrificial laws they were for a time now have been fulfilled in Christ maybe these fall into that same sort of category and therefore we put them to one side. Can I say this is a part of the, the Bible? So it seems to me we've got to wrestle with it and understand it uh, as we try and engage and think it through together. So as we start, let me tell you some of the presuppositions I'm operating with so you can understand where I'm coming from uh, which might help you in terms of where we're, we're going. Okay, so where am I coming from? In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he talks about the Bible or the scriptures in this way. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and following. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Three things just to briefly draw attention to here. First is, uh, the Bible is, is God's word. It's described as being God-breathed. And that's what we have here in the scriptures, God speaking to us. These aren't some uh, patriarchal reflections from a guy in the 60s AD. This is actually fundamentally God who speaks to us and speaks to us across all time. It's an authoritative word. That's what we're told in those verses. That is, God speaks, we should listen, and we should uh, put it into practice as we gather together. The third thing it says is that it's relevant. Um, you would have heard in 2 Timothy 3 the idea of God's word equipping us for every good work. Uh, that is, the scriptures are positively designed to help us to honour God together. That's the background. Let me just pray uh, that God will, will help us because I know that different ones of us, we hit this from different directions with different thoughts, very different family backgrounds and that um, can make it challenging, I think, when we come to a passage like this. So let me pray that, that God will help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Father, we know that you bring us together from all sorts of different backgrounds. That's part of your grace and mercy to us. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners and we, we are sinners who have been saved from a variety of situations. We pray that you'll be with us as we wrestle with your word, as we attempt to understand it. And Father, we pray you'll give us hearts and insight, but also that uh, ability to keep focusing on the central things in your word and not get caught on the, um, 
the secondary matters and make them primary. We know that was an issue for this church. And Father, we pray for us. Uh, we will wrestle helpfully together in a healthy manner. Uh, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're following the outline, I'm up to point number one, the context. I just want to remind us of uh, where we, we've come from in chapter one, what this letter is uh, here to do. Uh, essentially, Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him as a pastor of a church to train this church in godliness and faithfulness. Uh, so you pick it up even in chapter two, uh, verse two. Uh, here's an instruction so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's a concern. Or verse 8, uh, the instruction to lift up holy hands. Uh, these instructions also uh, in this letter are especially for when God's people meet together and that's especially the case here in chapter 2. You get that when you go over to chapter 3 of this letter, verse 15 where Paul says he's writing so they know how to conduct themselves in God's household, uh, which he calls the church. Uh, so there's that uh, concern for the corporate meeting. So a bit like this when we meet together. Remember, there are false teachers operating in this church. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul has instructed Timothy not to let people teach false doctrines. Uh, we're not sure exactly of the content of that. There was obviously legalism operating when you go over to chapter 4, verse 3 of this letter, uh, these false teachers are obviously forbidding marriage, which is a good thing. Uh, so there's a, a funny sort of hyper-legalism, super-Christianity that seems to be actually contradicting the Word of God. Now you see in chapter 1, there's a reference to fighting over incidental matters like myths and genealogies. Uh, this is a church that's lost their concern for central matters, to do with the mercy and the grace and the salvation that there is in Christ. And while we come to this chapter, which is challenging, chapter 2, we need to keep remembering that this whole letter is not a negative letter. It's actually a positive instruction to help a church be healthy. Okay, So we can hit it and think, what on earth is going on here? But we need to keep remembering that Paul is writing to Timothy, so this church can actually be uh, the church that God wants it to be. Okay, so let's get into the, the actual chapter itself. And it starts off, uh, the first section is on the vital importance of prayer. Come with me to verse 1, uh, where Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Then you go to verse 2, for all in authority. So we'll all live in godliness. So we'll please God who wants, verse 4, all people to be saved. Do you pick that up? All, 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 all. That sort of global sense of what's going on. Uh, this is a church where there is fighting over those incidental matters. And Paul instructs them to redirect their focus, not on the fights they have with each other, but to their Lord God, who has rescued them out of sin and brought them to himself, the merciful God. They're to pray for everyone. That includes all in authority. Um, and I take it we're to pray for those who are in authority. We're not quite sure here in Australia who's in authority right now. It seems to be a bit of a, uh, an unsettled sort of context. But whoever actually is in authority, uh, we're to pray for them. 
Uh, and that obviously includes people who don't put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the instruction here is so that the gospel might advance. There's an instruction about having order in our society so that the gospel has the capacity to flourish, so Christians can live lives uh, that honour God. Especially so that there might be impact on unbelievers. You get that instruction? Because God wants, verse 4, all people to be saved. Now it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that God wants all to be saved? Because elsewhere in the New Testament, it'll be very clear to you that all people aren't saved. That is, uh, there are some who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the New Testament's also very clear that some who don't won't be rescued from their sin and won't share life with God. So who are the, the all that are being spoken of here? Because surely if God wanted all people to be saved, then the sovereign Lord of the universe could do that, couldn't he? Who are the all? And I'm tempted at this point to get you to discuss it with each other, so you can disagree with each other before you disagree with me. Uh, but let me, I'll just short-circuit that for just a second. I don't think it's talking about all without exception. Everyone everywhere is going to be saved. I think what he's saying is all without distinction. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. And let me explain what I mean there. That is, the gospel is for people from every tribe, race, colour, gender, no matter what past you have, no matter how much you've sinned. And God, in his kindness, wants his word of mercy and grace to go to the whole world. Uh, there is no place that this gospel is not for, or no group or tribe. It's not that everyone will respond to it, but it is for all people everywhere. And then he goes on, uh, because he says there is one God. The reason why it's one gospel for everywhere is because there's only one God. Verse 5, uh, there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, we're about to come to some of the controversial things to do with men and women in the church. But let me say this is a much more controversial statement, really. You hear what it's saying? There is only one God and there is only one mediator, Christ Jesus. And he's the one who's given himself as a ransom all people. Uh, there are many in our context here in Australia who would tell you that all religious roads lead you to the one God. A bit like you know, Sue and I came here from Prospect this morning and on the way out here I said to Sue there are probably much faster ways to get there and Sue said we should have looked this up on our Google Maps before we came you know <laughs> and it's true we probably could have taken a thousand different routes to get here this morning, and all of them would have actually gotten us here. Right? People often say religions are like that. There are lots of different religions, but ultimately they'll get you to the one true living God. You understand Paul here is speaking to Timothy and saying that's absolute rubbish. He's saying that is not the case. There is one mediator, that is Jesus. There is one ransom. There is only one way to God because there is only one who died for your sins and can bring you to God. Okay? Who else died for your sins? Who else was sacrificed so that you could be forgiven, so that you can enjoy a relationship with God? Paul says, no one else. 
one mediator, one ransom, one God, one way to God. Now, here's the question I want to ask, though. In this section on, on prayer, why is it especially applied to men? Why especially applied to men? Look at verse 8. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Back in chapter 1, uh, it's clear that there's speculation and controversy an argument, and that's generated by men. Uh, the false teachers are clearly identified as males in this context. You get a couple of them towards the end, Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's interesting when you go to chapter 3, uh, the leaders and the elders there, uh, males, are told not to be quarrelsome and not to be argumentative. Uh, now, th this may be a, a sexist uh, generalisation, but I think that men actually are much more inclined than women to get into arguments and fights uh, on the whole. Uh, after I preached last week, there was uh, a woman who came up to me and said, you know, when she was at uni, it used to drive her nuts that in Bible study groups and the Christian groups, the men would always be arguing about trivial things and incidental things like Calvinism and stuff like that. And she constantly would think, oh, come on, get over yourselves. Let's do something that actually has impact and value and godliness and growth. But in my experience, that actually is a characteristic of men. That's the way in which we tend to operate. I think the point being made here is that real men, godly men, they don't live up, lift up angry hands, disputing hands. They lift up holy hands. So for those of you who are men, this is not, uh, not an instruction I think that's helpful for women. But I particularly want to identify the men in the room and say... When it comes to prayer, and if you're a Christian man, are you someone who initiates praying? Is that your instinct? Uh, do you lead in prayer at home or in a small group context or when you meet uh, with friends or even after church today, if you're talking to someone and there's an issue, is your instinct to say, let's pray about this together? Actually, I think that often men fail to do that. They fail to actually rely upon God and encourage others by calling out to God, particularly with other men. So let me put that on the line. This is something I think that I've had to learn and I'm still learning. My instinct is to think I've got solutions for people's problems, which causes stupidity. I don't have many solutions much at all. But I am confident that God does. And in his power and goodness, he actually can be at work in people's lives, caring for them. And one of the things I think that Sue and I have done in recent times, but it's required me to do it, is we'll often have people over, Christian friends over, uh, just for a meal and to catch up. And it, towards the end of the night, it almost seems... Uh, Countercultural. When we have it's just a social sort of gathering, social sort of gathering at one level. Uh, but it just seems so appropriate to stop as brothers and sisters in Christ and to spend some time praying at our evening together. But it's not culturally what I've always felt comfortable doing in a way. I've actually had to grow and be trained in doing that. And Sue's been good at encouraging me actually in that. It's been really helpful. Godly men lift up holy hands. They don't fight, they lead in prayer. 
You're a godly man? Okay. So show that by leading in prayer. Okay. The focus in the chapter then shifts to the more, uh, what seems to us to be more contentious, uh, to women, and particularly the first couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, are on how to worship God. Now, these verses do seem to have a lot to say about fashion and jewellery. You would have picked that up when you were listening. Let me read them again. Uh, I want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, here are a few thoughts. Firstly, I feel totally unqualified to comment on fashion of any sort, yet alone female fashion. Uh, I remember one time I was preaching in the city, in at Trinity City, and uh, one of the, it was actually a woman, didn't need to be a woman, who came up to one of the other staff at the end of a six-week series and said they were really concerned for me and wondered if, they, if the church needed to be paying me more money. Right? And the staff member said, why? Why do you ask that? And they said, well, Paul has worn exactly the same jumper, shirt, pants and shoes for every week of the six-week series. Okay? <laughs> now, if you'd asked me if I'd done that, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I'm totally oblivious to what... Uh, it's obvious, you know, like I'm totally oblivious to what I wear... Uh, and I just picked up the first thing that was in the wardrobe, which happened to be the same thing that was in the... You know, that's just the way in which it worked. Okay. So let me say, I am unqualified to comment on some of these matters. Uh, I'm also aware that today, uh, men can spend an enormous amount of time on grooming and fashion and everything like that. So I think there's a, there is a cultural dimension operating, a cultural dimension operating with this instruction. And then the third thing is, I hope you picked up that the main point here is not clothing or fashion. It's actually godliness. That's not where the focus lies. That is, verses 9 and 10 here are not saying females or even men uh, wear a sack, avoid makeup, and the motto for a good Christian woman is be unkempt and shabby. Right? Uh, this is your, your calling in life. Right? It, it isn't saying that. What it's saying is dress to please God. Dress to please God. Modestly, with decency and propriety. Now, the modestly, the word here is talking about not uh, trying to impress one another or to go one up in our relationships with each other. That's not the reason or why you dress. Uh, the idea of decency and with propriety is particularly uh, picking up on a, a sexually modest sort of word. Not dressing so that people focus on your body and the way in which you look. Now, th I think that's enormously helpful in terms of instructions. Instead, verse 10, clothe yourself with good deeds, right? That is, the focus is not on what we wear, how we look, or our jewellery, or our fashion, or the gel we put in our hair, or, you know, that's not the focus. The focus is on clothing yourself with good deeds, uh, prayer, uh, being someone who shares the gospel with others, hospitality and generosity towards outsiders, kindness, helping people who are in trouble. 
These are the things you ought to clothe yourself with. Godly activity. And the thing about godly activity is it, it never goes out of fashion. No? Uh, you never have to change your wardrobe when it comes to godly activity. It goes on. And then we get to these verses in verses 11 and 15, which are, the, I think, the ones that really catch our attention about learning and teaching when we gather together as the household of God. You get the main point in verses 11 and 12, and in verses 13 to 15, give the explanation for the point. Right? Verse 11 and 12, main point, explanation comes afterwards. Verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be uh, quiet or silent. A few thoughts. Uh, firstly, it, it's actually a positive command to learn. Now, that makes sense given the context of false teaching, uh, that given the nature of false teaching, obviously you want people to learn what the truth is. Second thing is, it has cultural implications too. That is, the education of women in this period and this, this particular place was not a high priority and therefore Paul is advocating education. And the way you learn is by being quiet or silent, that is, you listen. Right? So that's, that's essentially the point he's making. When you get to verse 12, it's more controversial. Right? Don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. But remember, we're talking about when the church meets together. So we're talking about this sort of context, the public gathering of God's people. Now, here is the question that's most often asked, I think, of this particular passage. Are we talking about just a, a cultural or a contextual sort of problem? That is, are we talking about a problem that was specific to this church in Ephesus, or are we talking about a general cultural issue that gave rise to this instruction? And are the particular circumstances of Ephesus or the cultural context no longer applicable to us living in 21st century Australia? Okay. So uh, the way some people have argued this is that uh, the context, as I said before, is that we have untaught or uneducated women and therefore, once you enter into a 21st century Australian context, uh, we have highly educated women, and therefore this instruction is no longer applicable because of that. I, I don't think that, that makes sense of this passage. Let, let me tell you why. Because if it was to do with the education, then verse 12 would read something like this, I think. Uh, I don't permit the ignorant to teach or to have authority or the uneducated to teach or to have authority. That's not what it says. See, look, there was just as many men who were ignorant or uneducated. And if you remember the context of this church, it was actually the men who were the false teachers. So it makes sense for them you know, to be instructed about learning and uh, getting it right as well. And I think the fact that it's not a cultural or a contextual problem is actually reinforced by the supporting arguments in verses 13 to 15, right? which you need to look at carefully with me. Okay? And I'm, these are brief arguments, so they need, to be, they need to be wrestled with. Firstly, there's an argument from uh, the ordering of creation. So you go to verse 13, it says, For Adam was born first, then Eve. And you think, well, so what? You know, 
a big deal. You know, my second child coming out is no different to my first child, you know, my younger child. So what, what is the point being made here? Uh, is it, I don't think it's just an appeal to culture or circumstance, like with the argument I think about clothing in verses 9 to 10, because the appeal goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible. This is um, background argument on the way God has designed and created the world, including the relationship between men and women. Now, to say that Adam is created first, then Eve, it's not a statement about importance, right? It's a statement about design and purpose. A bit like if you've got a, um, a flat pack from Ikea, right? You get some pieces furnished from Ikea, and you pull it out, and you've got this instruction list that might have 64 steps to assemble your flat pack from Ikea. And which bits go in what order so you get a sturdy book bookshelf or something like that. Okay. Now, if you've got 64 step-by-step instructions and you start randomly going through them, well, 50, that looks like a good instruction. I'll start with number 50, right? Then I'll go to 22, then I'll go to 63, then I'll go to 2, you know. At the end of, ah, oh, look, this looks like a fairly non-essential part. Poof, throw it out, you know. So oh, that one too, you know. At the end of the day, you're not going to have a particularly good bookshelf, right? It's going to crash to the ground. Okay, it's the same with the idea here with Adam and Eve. What we've got is an instruction about ordering, not an instruction about the relative importance of Adam versus Eve. Now that's reinforced in verse 14. Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What we're doing here is moving from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. Right, we've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2 about creation. Now we move to the fall in Genesis 3, where the woman is tempted by Satan and sins, then tempts her husband to sin. Now hear me really clearly here. This is not saying women are more gullible than men. It is not saying women are more likely to sin than men. It's not saying either of those two things. Who are the false teachers in the church at Ephesus. They are men, right? That's, that's fairly clear from the context. It's not saying Adam is somehow blameless uh, for what's going on here. But it is saying that that pattern of God's created order has been flipped on its head. So if you go through Genesis 1 and 2, what you've got is um, an ordering of creation with God Adam, Eve, the wider created order. When you get to chapter 3, what you have is the creation via Satan, tempting Eve, who then draws Adam into sin, and then they're confronted by God. Do you understand there's a studied reversal of what is going on in creation, which is a major problem? Now, is this the most detailed explanation of Genesis 1 to 3 in support of this argument that I would like? No, no, it's actually fairly brief. Uh, and there are lots of questions I have around this. But let me say the appeal here is to scripture. It's not to cultural circumstances. And it's based on a creation purpose. Then you go to verse 15, which I think 
there are a series of puzzles here, right? Verse 15 is probably one of the bigger ones. Uh, women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Okay, I thought back in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, we were saved through Christ Jesus dying for our sins, not through... Ch what's going on here? How do you get saved by bearing children rather than through Christ? What? Paul hasn't had a senior's moment between chapters 1 and 2, so how, how is this working? It's not saying godly women will never die in childbirth. It's not saying women will be saved by bearing children. That is, their salvation doesn't occur as a result of that. Some have argued this might be a way of saying a reference to Jesus, that is, through the birth of a child, Jesus, we are saved. Uh, I, I'm not particularly convinced by that argument. And I think the... The answer probably comes back in Genesis chapter 3 because that's where the, the Apostle Paul is arguing from. Let me read to you from Genesis 3 verse 16 where God is um, announcing the judgment on sin because Adam and Eve have rejected him. Verse 16 of chapter 3. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. The point being made here is that a child bearing now in this sort of fallen world situation uh, results in pain in the giving of birth. Okay, uh, Jack Page has been leading our music and that wonderful children's talk, right? His brother, uh, well, his wife, his brother's wife had a child just about a week ago. Okay, it wasn't actually his brother had the child. Well, did, but you know what I mean, okay? Now, my, my suspicion is if we interviewed Sophie, right, she'd be able to say it was painful, right, unless she was drugged to the eyeballs and wasn't, wasn't aware of it, okay? That's the nature of childbirth in this world. And I think that the point being made is that uh, despite the, the judgment that God brings on the world, he, God is still committed to salvation. Right, uh, So saving through even that judgment that comes with the giving of children. Salvation despite sin. You also get the indication in verse 16 of chapter 3 about the, um, the battle for the sexes. Did you hear it from Genesis 3? Uh, God speaking to the woman says, Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The desire spoken of here is not an attraction, a sexual desire thing. The word means to control. Um, in fact, when you get to Cain and Abel, uh, when, when there's one brother killing the other, it's because his desire is for his brother in Genesis chapter 4. Same word is used. It's a controlling um, need to have authority over word. Uh, your desire will be for your husband. You want to control him. And then the answer and response in verse 316 is that, but he will rule over you, which is part of the fall. That is, he will uh, abuse his power and authority. And so you get the, the, the sort of uh, tension between the sexes, uh, the battle between the sexes that emerges in our world. The call in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is for a church in its public meetings to reflect the complementary nature of male-female relationships 
when they meet together. Right, that's the particular focus that's going on here. Uh, it's a, an instruction for some men to teach. This is not an instruction for every man to have authority over every woman. And you get that when you get to chapter 3, and it's talking about elders in the church of God. It's for some men to have teaching authority among the people of God over both men and women, actually. That's the appropriate thing. And it's when the church meets together. Okay. Now, I have just ploughed through uh, some of the most tricky verses in the New Testament and giving you my sort of thumbnail sketch of what I think is going on. What I want to do for just a couple of seconds is to talk about the implications of it, the think it through. That's what's on the outline there. Uh, I'm really aware that what I've said, you may be wrestling with it, some of it may be new, some of you may be thinking, well, he's stupid if he thinks that. You know, like there can be all sorts of reactions when we come to this sort of passage. Let me talk to you about a couple of implication or applicational things. So let me come back to the question. Is this, a, is this a culturally or a situationally bound instruction? I've indicated it's not, but could it be? So could this be teaching that reflects a patriarchally bound, male-dominated culture? Is Paul the Apostle just a man of his era? Uh, we can't blame him, but nor should we adopt his era. Is that, that a possibility here? I think you could actually ask the same question of us in 21st century Adelaide. Have we got it right when it comes to our values? Are our values superior when we wrestle with relationships? Uh, when we wrestle with uh, divorce, when we're eroding gender differences just across the board as if they don't exist, um, when we're talking about same-sex marriage and all its implications? Uh, I think you could argue, uh, are we so much more enlightened in our age than they were in their age? Um, or maybe you think, is there a particular context that's operating in this church in Ephesus? Uh, if you read back to the formation of this church back in Acts of the, Apostle, Acts of the Apostles, it, it's clear that in Ephesus there was a female goddess culture. And so maybe uh, people argue it's possible Paul was speaking to that female goddess culture and saying we need to carefully critique what is going on here. Uh, I think understanding context is enormously helpful, uh, but I want to suggest to you that the Word of God here is above history and above culture, and we need to be thinking that one through at this point. Um, so some would say, well, what about women wearing hats in church? We don't do that any longer. So why is this relevant? I think that is very clearly when you go through the, the New Testament, put into a culturally historical sort of context. Or when you go, say, to the Old Testament about the sacrifices, the sacrifices of animals. We don't do that any longer, do we? But the thing is, that's been fulfilled in Christ, and we get clear instructions about both those things, I think. This one, what we have is an instruction from God's Word backing up God's Word. Right, it's not relying on history or culture. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, let me tell you what I don't think it means, as opposed to what it does mean, what it doesn't mean. Right? Uh, it's not saying women shouldn't be in ministry positions. Right? When you go through the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, the same one 
is involved here in 1 Timothy, he endorses his female partners in the gospel. He does that consistently. You go to Philippians 4, uh, he talks about Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, you go to Romans chapter 16, he talks about Priscilla. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Paul speaks incredibly positively about Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. It's not saying women don't get involved in ministry. Okay. Second thing is, it's not saying women are inferior to men. Difference in role does not mean lesser value as, as a person. Now, is Jack right, less than or inferior to Mike Sams? Mike trains Jack. Mike is the senior pastor of this church. Jack, Jack is just, a, just a, uh, a trainee, right? So Jack is a lesser man than Mike, right? We'd never think that, would we? But they do have different roles, even though they're equal in value. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told there that Jesus submits himself to his heavenly Father. Well, that's because Jesus is less than the Father. And I'm a heretic if I say that, and you should stone me after the service, okay? Jesus is not less than the Father, but he chooses to submit himself to his Father, his heavenly Father. There's an ordering in their relationship. Third thing is this, this instruction here in 1 Timothy 2 is not saying women can't teach men. Right? It's not saying women can't teach men. What we have is an instruction here about some men being teaching elders in a church. Right? Some men being teaching elders in a church. It's re reinforced by the eldership requirements when we get to chapter 3 next week that I'll, I'll come to next week. But again, in the New Testament, we have clear instructions of women teaching. Right? Let me give you some examples. In Acts chapter 18, we discover there that Priscilla is instructing Apollos. When you go to Ephesians 4, we have general instructions given to, given to the whole church, uh, males and females, and we're told in verse 15 that we're to speak the truth of God's word in love to one another. I take it the, the normal or the baseline in the New Testament is for men and women to be encouraging each other in the truth of the gospel and to be teaching in those sorts of ways to one another. Uh, uh, Sue and I have been married now 35 years. I think Sue is the one who teaches me the most from God's word. I think that's right. Shouldn't husbands and wives do that together? We don't get together and have, you know, open up the Bible and say, listen, Sue, while pearls drop from my mouth about what the scripture means for us, right? We, we both have the Bible and we both engage in the scriptures to encourage one another in God's word, okay? Doesn't mean men can't teach women. It doesn't mean women are less talented or gifted. That's just rubbish. It doesn't mean women can't speak in church. Okay, when you go to 1 Corinthians 11, we discover there that women prophesy, pray, and speak in tongues. So there's obviously no problem with women speaking in church and uh, articulating in church. And again, let me say, it's not all men having authority over all women. What we're talking about is the church gathered and elders, certain elders in the church, having certain authority among the people of God, particularly for doing the sort of activity 
that I take it that I'm doing today. Okay. What it doesn't mean, let me just give you a brief what it does mean for us today. This is where I'm coming from. This is saying the eldership teaching role, the sort of role that, say, Mike Sam, Sams has, in my uh, opinion, based on what I think 1 Timothy is saying, I think a male should have that role. I think this is an instruction for churches of God everywhere for all time. And that's based on the way in which you read through 1 Timothy chapter 2 and see its reliance on Genesis 1 and 2, creation, which is pre-fall. You see, it's, it's the way God intended it to be. And this fits in with the wider teaching elsewhere in the New Testament about men and women. So if you go to Genesis 1 to 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians 11, all reinforce that same sort of framework of understanding about the way in which we should meet together. So that's what I think in particular we're being told here in 1 Timothy 2. Now, let me just conclude by saying, what if you don't agree with the way I've handled the text today? Okay, so what if you disagree with Paul Harrington as I've opened up the Bible? You can sort of join a number of people who don't agree with me about a number of things, including this issue. So I have lots of Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who hold a different view on this particular issue when they come to the New Testament. No question about that. Uh, I'm still in good fellowship uh, with those people in Christ. They're good brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I say, though, that each of us has a responsibility under God to examine his word and to ask God uh, that he might help us to understand and obey. We cannot absolve that responsibility. Uh, sometimes when people come to that text, they just say, oh, this just sounds stupid, so it's obviously wrong. Or they say, I know someone who's a, a Christian person who's educated, who has a different view, I like them and their view. Uh, I, I just think that, yeah, I don't think you can do that, to be quite honest. I think you need to take responsibility for yourself as you come to God's word together. Does it matter? That is, I'm saying there are Christians who hold one view, and there are Christians who hold another view on this text. So, does it matter? I don't think it does from the point of, point of view of our salvation in Christ. But I take it that whenever we don't um, follow the word of God uh, accurately, it'll have implications for our life together. So we should expect that if we get it wrong, one way or the other, there'll be implications uh, for our life together. However, let me say, I do not think this is an issue that believers should ever divide over. Uh, and that's really the 1 Timothy context. Chapter 1, you fight for the essentials of the gospel every time. The death of Jesus for sin, his resurrection from the dead, that Jesus is the only way to God. Fight over that every day of the week. But I take it when we come here to chapter 2, uh, we don't fight about these issues, even though we have to wrestle with them together. We're to be united together in our desire to glorify God. Okay, I've spoken for a fair while, 
and I've only really skimmed across this passage, and I really apologise for that. Can I say, uh, if you want to wrestle with these things with me, really happy to engage and talk them through. Uh, you may not want to do it after the meeting. You may want to. I'm really comfortable either way. I'm always available to talk about these things, especially if you're buying the coffee. Uh, you know, like, I really am. I really am comfortable to uh, sit down and work through this stuff. Uh, I have many brothers and sisters in Christ who do not hold this view that I've just explained. Um, they are still good brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll meet together, we'll have coffee, we'll talk. I may not convince you, you may not convince me. We'll still be brothers and sisters in Christ and you can buy me a coffee anytime. All right? Okay, so... Uh, just bear that in mind. But let me pray for us that we'll be focused on the essentials. We'll work out these things together well. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your grace to us and your son. And Father, we know that not, not every issue we come across in the Bible we're going to find easily fits with our understanding of life in this world or the way we share life together as your people. But Father, you're we ask you'll give us that deep desire to honour you, to honour your word and to respect each other as we genuinely try and work out the truth of your word together. And Father, we pray that you'll guard our, our community, this, this young church here at Trinity Grove, that it will be a church centred on your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we won't divide or be distracted by non-central matters and yet we'll be working hard faithfully to honour you and to care for each other in this process. Uh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.